This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, Wilson Street, London, EC2. Its title is The Hand of Fellowship. Now I must explain why we have given it this title and what the purpose of this particular recording may be. It's obvious if we stretch out the hand of fellowship, we are seeking fellowship, we are seeking an entrance, we are seeking to be of help, we are seeking to be understood. On the other hand, we've got indications in the scriptures that we ought to be watchful with regard to fellowship in case we should have fellowship with that which is evil. And therefore, realising that it is so necessary, especially in days like this, when there are so many isms and so many peculiar teachings afoot, it is very necessary and very right that everyone should first of all want to get some assurance as to the position, the doctrine, the purpose with which this ministry goes forth. I'm not quite sure how many of these tape recordings are now in circulation, somewhere between 200 and 300. I don't remember, although I've done most of them myself. But we know that occasionally one of these comes into the home or into a little meeting of those gathered together and it has never had an introduction. They've never been told just who these people are and what they're out to do. So we're going to use this opportunity to just have a little talk with you as simply as it's humanly possible so that you may have first-hand evidence as to what it's all about. I say first-hand evidence because I've seen in print some of the things that I'm supposed to believe and I don't recognise my own children. Well now I will not go over the scriptures, though many of them, where you have this solemn element of warning. I remember the Apostle Paul uh, when he was facing a crisis in his own ministry. He said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Well, that's one of the things I want to speak about. <clears throat> to draw away disciples after them. You have heard that this talk is being given in the chapel of the opened book. Well, that's a convenient centre. But this is not a denominational chapel. We don't belong to any existing organisation. We just use this building as a convenient place to meet. But we're not sure whether it was ever consecrated, and even if it was, it would make no difference to us. And then we want to ask you to remember that you are not invited to join anything. There is no membership attached to this place. I don't mean to say that we are slack with regard to our teaching. I'll put it this way. Some year or two ago, a stranger came into this chapel and he said to me, after a few minutes' conversation, <coughs> he said, I uh, hope you believe in a free ministry. Well, I'm afraid I've got a disconcerting way of getting right to the spot at once. I said, that means 
to say that now you've said that, I fall on your neck and I say, oh brother, come and take my meeting for me next Sunday. Well, he was leading up to that, only he was going to be about a half an hour getting to it, you see. So I said, look friend, the pews in this chapel are as broad as redemption itself. Nobody is asked what they believe. Nobody is asked to subscribe to any creed. But I said, that pulpit is so narrow, I can hardly get into it after 50 years of it. I should want to know a little bit more about what you believe before you took a meeting here. Now you understand. We do believe and hold fast the truth as we see it. But we impose nothing upon anybody as a condition of membership. So you who are using this tape recording, don't be afraid that you're going to be involved and belong to some weird denomination or be obliged to have a number on a roll or wear some buttonhole in your coat. Nothing of the kind. The one thing we are concerned about is do you belong to Christ? And if you do, well, we can go on and help you. If you do not, well, that's the first initial step that must be made and God help you if you do not, do not know Christ as your Saviour. Well, now I turn to another scripture which gives me a little hint and that is expressed by Peter. First of Peter, chapter 3. And this is what he says. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you see, we have an obligation as before the Lord that if we suspect that anybody is asking, we should also, we should be immediately ready and willing to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And he tells me I should do it in meekness and in fear. Well, I hope I'll do it in meekness in the sense that I should not be laying the law down except I definitely believe what I say myself. But I'm certainly not going to do it in fear of the consequences of what you will say about it or anybody else except it's done in the fear of the Lord. Well, I think that ought to give us a little idea of something of the atmosphere that you might expect. Well now, you will realise, if you have had any of these recordings, uh, that there is a curious sounding title given to the organisation. Because although we are not a denomination, we cannot have other people's money, we cannot print books, we cannot have a publication, we cannot have tape recordings that cost us already over £2,000, we must have some regulation. Consequently, I'll explain to you what the meaning of the term the Berean Forward Movement. I've had some people wonder what on earth the Berean means. In fact, when I was in Scotland many years ago, I learned to my astonishment I was the author of the Berean Expositor. I, I, I like the spirit in which it was uttered, but exactly what they meant, I don't know. <coughs> Will you turn to the Acts of the Apostles, the 17th chapter? Verse 10. 
And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. Now you see, that gives us our title. The word Berea means nothing so far as we are concerned, except a village in Greece. It's still in existence, and they spell it with a V and not with a B, if you're looking for it on the map. But the point is, they were commended by the Lord. Now if you would like to look at your own leisure at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see that he commends the Thessalonians that they receive the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. But these Bereans were even better. So they must have been of a very high standard, mustn't they? So what was the thing that was better? Well, they did the same as the Thessalonians. They received the word. But then they did something else. They searched to see if what was taught them was so. Now I'm sure that should commend itself to anybody who believes the word of God to be true and that they have a personal responsibility before the Lord. So whatever you hear in these recordings or read in our publications, when it's all said and done, we've done all that we can do except make up your mind. You've got to now search the scriptures and see whether they harmonize, and if they do, the responsibility is yours. The reason why we had to have a Berean forward movement at all is because we became the users of this chapel, a delightful little chapel in the city of London itself. And you may know enough to know that you cannot take possession of a public building without having a legal basis. And so we had to have a trust. And that trust, we had to have some distinctive statements in that trust as to what we stood for, what we believed. We couldn't just leave it vague. So I'm going to tell you now what the four basic tenets of this Berean forward movement are. Now, don't be frightened. I said earlier, Nobody is presented with these when they come to the chapel. Nobody is buttonholed and said, you believe this, you believe that, or the other. I'm only telling you I've got to believe it. I'm only telling you that Mr. Foster, who is the secretary, and Mr. Canning, who is the publication secretary, they've got to believe it. Because if they didn't believe it in their hearts, we'd have to turn round and walk out. Now, this is what we have down in our trustees. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I hope that's plain enough. We believe that we should rightly divide the word of truth. That may need a little explanation. We believe the deity of Christ. That is to say, we know that there are in the universe two categories and two only. The creator and the creature. There's nothing that can be halfway between the creator and the creature. The highest order in heaven is a creature. Well, either Christ is a creature or he's the creator. And we see enough in the scriptures to see that they have never hesitated from one end to the other to say that the one Lord of the Old Testament 
is the one Lord of the new. We don't believe in two Lords. One belonging to the Old Testament and one to the new. And then, fourthly, we have four fundamental tenets. The supreme necessity and the all-sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. We purposely did not say redemption or atonement because the one sacrifice of Christ covers both redemption and atonement and sanctification and justification. I don't know what else. So we've said the one sacrifice. Well now if you say you're not so old-fashioned as to believe that the Bible is true, if you say you have no place for a Christ like that, or you have no room for a gospel that necessitates a sacrifice, well I think you better pack up and go somewhere else, friends, because you'll get no good out of these recordings unless by the mercy of God they hit you so hard that in spite of yourself you fall down on your knees like Paul of old and said, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? But I don't anticipate that you're going to take that attitude. I think you ought to be assured as you listen that here is no idea of cutting the word of God to pieces, denying the book of Genesis or saying Moses didn't write this. We stand with Christ. The Bible that he lived and died to prove is the Bible we live and seek to follow. Now the one feature that perhaps may need a little explanation is the word right division. That is a peculiar characteristic of our witness and so I would like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15. There are some folks who may warn you. They're very good at warning you especially if it touches their own peculiar point of view. They say if you divide the word of truth you're just like a higher critic, cutting it to pieces. Well, I believe the Apostle Paul, apart from inspiration, was a logical man. You cannot read his epistles and know that he couldn't put two and two together and make them four. Which, of course, is the essence of logic. So the one epistle to which I turn, of all the epistles in the New Testament, to find a proof text that the whole of the scripture is inspired, is the one epistle to which I turn to learn that I must rightly divide it. So if rightly dividing the scriptures means that I deny its inspiration, well then I've I've torn the epistle written to Timothy into pieces. So it doesn't follow. Will you look at the 15th verse? 2 Timothy 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The word study does not mean a roll-top desk. It might do, of course. But the word simply means to be diligent. And you'll find it is used by Paul in the last chapter, verse 21. Do thy diligence to come before winter. And a man who was going to get through the country in those days and get there before winter, he may have had to have been energetic. So make it your business to show thyself approved unto God. Not to any leadership or eldership or council or examination board, but approved unto God. A workman. Don't be upset because you belong to the working class. 
This is the true working class. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, why? Rightly dividing the word of truth. You notice what is to be divided? It's the word of truth. There's no doubt about that in the apostle's mind. But he suggests that unless you rightly divide it, you may be ashamed of your work. I want to turn to two passages just by way of illustration. First of all, in the Old Testament, we have a passage in Proverbs chapter 3. And while we're turning to it, I'll explain to you uh, that um, there is a version of the scriptures called the Septuagint because it was written uh, supposedly by 70 about 300 years before Christ who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek for the benefit of Greek-speaking Jews who lived at Alexandria in Egypt. Now all that's been said while we are finding Proverbs chapter 3. So what I'm going to say to you is the word rightly dividing already is found in Scripture before you read it in 2 Timothy 2.15 for it comes in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. So shall we read those verses? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall rightly divide thy path. You may say to me, our version says direct. Well, that's an English way of translating the Hebrew word. But if you divide the word direct into two parts, and you look at the word rect, and you'll say rect, rectangle, well, that means right. And the di is a beginning of the word to divide. So if you direct anybody. If you direct anybody, you will rightly divide the district. I don't know whether you've ever arrived at a new place, come out of a railway station, seen a person and said, uh, could you direct me to so-and-so? And he scratches his head, he says, um, I think I said, I said, thank you friend, I'll ask somebody else, that's my attitude. The man I want is going to divide that district up for me. He says, take the second turning on the right, the third on the left, and across the square, and there you are. He's divided the whole place up. That's rightly dividing. So he doesn't need to have a great deal of gumption. It doesn't need to have a great deal of scholarship. It means if you can follow a signpost along a road, you can rightly divide the word of truth. As you come to a division in the scriptures, you say to yourself now, here I stand. This teaching is for the Jew. This teaching is for the Gentile. Which am I? Well, if you don't know, I can't tell you, can I? But personally, I'm convinced I'm a Gentile, so if there's an apostle of the Gentiles, I say that's the man for me. Rightly dividing is no more or less than that. And it goes on and on and on until at last you reach a high calling which God has revealed for this present dispensation. Now, the word dispensation is going to come up oh, many, many, many times whether we shall reach it in this little survey or not, I don't know. But it's a result of right division because it means that there are different callings, different companies, different spheres of hope, but all under the redemption of one saviour and all embedded in different parts of one book. So now let's see where we are. We're stretching out a hand of fellowship to somebody that we hope is a believer 
who may have been a little bit hesitant to accept our help, we've assured you that we are not involving you in any denominational or sectarian movement. We are telling you that we utterly and implicitly believe the scriptures to be true, and we revere the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and have no gospel to preach that sets aside his sacrificial work. And the great principle that actuates all our ministry is we seek rightly to divide this word of truth. Now I was going to turn to another passage, and that is found in Luke's Gospel. And there may be some of you who are listening to this, who have a little prejudice, as it were, against the Apostle Paul. I've met that. Some think that if they know the Gospel according to Matthew, that's enough for them. Well, that's a criticism of the Scriptures because God didn't think it was. And our Saviour himself in the Gospel according to John said to his disciples, I have many things to say unto you that you cannot bear them now. When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall lead you into all truth. He shall take of the things of mine and show them unto you. So we ought to say, oh, but if that's the case, we would like to know those things which couldn't be said to them then, but has been said since. But nevertheless, we go back to the Gospel according to Luke in the fourth chapter, and we find at the very opening of our Saviour's ministry, he put into practice the, the principle of right division. Now, will you read with me the 16th verse onwards? Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And I was going to say, all the rest of the people sat up. I don't know whether anybody could possibly doze when the Son of God was reading scriptures, but it's possible in some meetings, somebody else might be reading them, but I'm sure they never had such a jolt as this. You know, the rabbinical law that governs the reading of portions of scripture is this that a portion of scripture should be round about 20 to 25 verses. That's reasonable, isn't it? So when our Saviour stood up for to read, they would expect him to read round about 20 to 25 verses. But what did he do? Well, we'll see in a moment what he did. But hear what he said. He closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, I think we ought to go back to the prophet Isaiah itself, chapter 61, and just see what was in front of our Lord when he read that passage. And it will do something else for us. Because we are now going to read the translation of the ancient Hebrew 
And we've already read in Luke's Gospel what our Lord is supposed to have said in the synagogue. And you'll see that they're word for word just the same. And in passing, I would mention this. You remember there was a good deal of interest provoked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we were all have gone to discover what they were going to say about them. Well, they've written books. They've had articles in the paper all about the peculiar tenets of the SNEs. But they've never bothered to tell you very much about the one thing we were concerned about. For they discovered a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. But of course it's no news in a newspaper to tell you that this ancient scroll says exactly the same as what we've got already, so nothing's been said. If they'd have found it was opposite or different or in any measure contradictory, all oh, that have had big headlines in the paper. So rest assured, friends, here we have the very words in front of us repeated in Luke 4 that were there in this original prophecy. 61. I'll read it again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison of them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now you see what our Saviour did. And in the book that he was reading, there was no full stops or commas. So what represents nearly 2,000 years was just a space between the words, the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But if our Saviour had said both of those expressions, he couldn't have sat down and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, because the day of vengeance of our God hasn't come yet, thank God. Nearly 2,000 years has elapsed since he said, one bit's fulfilled, I'm waiting for the other. Now, this gives me an opportunity to counter another false teaching. But if you take the scriptures like we are endeavouring to do and putting them in their right place, some of them we're setting aside altogether. So will you look at Luke's Gospel again? The, uh, chapter 21. I think it's chapter 21. Oh no, where is it? 21, yes. It says in uh, verse 21 of chapter 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries that enter therein too, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Oh yes, Isaiah 61 is going to be fulfilled, both sides of it. But they weren't both, both fulfilled at the same time. The first part of the verse was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. The second part, with only a comma in between it, waits for his second coming, 2,000 years between two parts of a sentence. So that was the way in which our Saviour recognised and endorsed the need to keep all scripture in its right place dispensationally. Well now, among other things, we find when we consider the bearing of dispensational truth on scripture that there are at least three spheres in which the inheritance of God's people are to be enjoyed. Oh, this is a difficult thing to get in a few minutes. Uh, but let me remind you. The Sermon on the Mount says, 
the meek shall inherit the earth. And if you go from the days of Abraham right through Genesis, right through the prophets, right up to the birth of Christ, the expectation of the people there is a restored earth. The wilderness shall blossom as the rose. They're looking forward to the day when Jerusalem shall be a joy in all the earth. So we believe that there will be a restoring of the people of Israel. We believe a day is coming when they will be given their place in the earth. But then you remember, and you may remind me, that Abraham himself, who walked through the length of the land and the breadth of it, and claimed it, he nevertheless had something else held out to him. God will never give less than he promised, but he may give a bit more. And we're told that Abraham became willing to be a tent dweller and a pilgrim in the very land of promise, for he looked for a city which hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now you'll find that in Hebrews 11 and in Hebrews 12. It's a heavenly Jerusalem described in the last chapters of the book of the Revelation, which comes down eventually from heaven to the earth. Well now, none of you, I hope, are going to say the meek shall inherit the earth is all one and the same as they're going to walk the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem. Because if that is so, well, it doesn't matter what God says, we can believe what we like. But it isn't so. Abraham knew that there was a great difference between the land of Palestine that he walked through, the length of it and the breadth of it, and the new Jerusalem that he never saw except by faith. For we are told, like Moses, he endured as seeing him that is invisible. And he had a faith that embraced, although far off. So there we have an earth to be once more restored and blessed. We have a heavenly Jerusalem which will one day be the jewel city in a new earth where the sea will recede and leave a tremendous track of country so that it won't be abnormal or in any measure out of proportion. Is that all? Well, that is all in the case of so many. To walk in golden streets and go through the pearly gates and so on is not only uh, the joy of a Negro spiritual, but of some of the highest of God's people's hopes. Nevertheless, when we arrive at the, at the point that the Apostle Paul, as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, received a revelation when the people of Israel went out into their present blindness, they're now in blindness, he revealed that there was a sphere of blessing infinitely higher than the New Jerusalem. And so, as our time is well running out, we'll just turn to a passage which gives us a hint of that. And I turn to the Epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Here the Apostle claims to be the prisoner of Jesus Christ, but not the prisoner because of some evil that he had done. It was a part of his new title. The prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now he tells you as though he thought, now I haven't explained myself fully as I should. He said, I suppose you have heard 
of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, Lord. I knew this word dispensation had come in somewhere, so I better mention that the first occurrences of it are found in Luke's Gospel. You get an unjust steward, and the Lord tells him to give an account of his stewardship, and that word stewardship is this word dispensation. Oikonomia is dispensation, oikonomos is a steward, and oikonomos means one who administers and rules a house, a steward, a bailiff. Paul said he had received a special stewardship for us Gentiles. How did you get it, Paul? How did by revelation? He made known unto thee the mystery. Now the mystery is something which comes in when history comes to an end. Uh, I'm playing with words on purpose. When history finishes, mystery begins. Let me illustrate. Daniel was taken away captive and so were his people. And temporarily, Israel's history ceased. They became a captive people under Nebuchadnezzar. And in the book of Daniel, the word mystery occurs for the first time in the Bible. Again, of course, I'm referring to the Greek version. Mysterio, secret. When Israel failed, a secret comes in. And can't you see the reason why? If God made known all his plans and all his purposes, the evil one would be apprised of it beforehand. But he takes the wise in their own craftiness. And Satan overreaches himself because he doesn't know. There was not a word said in the Old Testament as to what God would do if Israel failed. You trace the scriptures from Genesis 12 when God called Abraham and said in thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. You'll find that word goes right through to the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and is quoted by Peter as being up to date. He said it was necessary that the word of God should be preached to you first for you were the channel through whom the gospel blessing should come. Well, what was God going to do supposing Israel failed? Because it's no good you saying, oh, they never failed, God wouldn't let them. Well, they did. Because if you take that line, you'd say God would never allow anybody to commit sin, but he did. He hasn't made us into automatic machines, he's given us a responsibility and a certain measure of freedom of choice. So Israel all they're called all manner of evil names in their own scriptures because of their disobedience, their hardness of heart, their failure. But there's not a single word written to tell you what God would do if after Christ came, Israel failed to accept him and were dismissed. You're left guessing. And the evil one was left guessing. He put a spoke in the wheel of God. He stopped the blessing flowing through Israel but God says, oh yes, but I'm not dependent upon Israel. I can use them, or I can go on without them. And so, this man had revealed to him something that was never in Scripture before. That God had chosen Gentiles before the foundation of the world. If you look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, you get the opening of this calling. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if you know your Bible, as I hope you do so far, you know that the general expression is from the foundation of the world, like our Saviour uses it in Matthew. But this is the only time that the word before the foundation of the world is used of anybody except Christ himself. And the two other passages are found, one in John 17, Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, and in the first of Peter, chapter 1, that he was verily foreordained to be a lamb without blemish and without spot before the foundation of the world. And the two expressions, loved and without blemish, are now said of those believers who have entered into this high calling as Ephesians 1 says, chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame, that's the word without blemish, before him in love, the two things that he saw in Christ, God sees in you and me if we're in this calling. That's wonderful, isn't it? So, this mystery was something that God had kept in reserve. What he would do, he told nobody. But when the moment came for Israel to be set aside as they have been during these dreadful 1900 years, since they said those words, his blood be upon us and upon our children, their city destroyed, their temple burned, they themselves called the scattered people, only just going back and even now in unbelief with barbed wire running through their holy city, they're not yet back. Not fully. One day they're going to do the thing they have never done. The prophet Zechariah says they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Or as it's put there, they shall look upon me whom they pierced. And shall mourn for him. That's Christ speaking in Zechariah. And when they do that, a nation shall be born in the day and the day of glory for this earth will adorn. They're waiting for that people destined to be a kingdom of priests unto God. So that the great burden of the ministry that belongs to this particular recording, coming from the chapter of the open book, while it embraces all scripture and rejoices in all the teaching, has a particular emphasis upon Paul's prison ministry. Now you will be warned by some people that if they listen to these recordings, the only Bible they'll possess will be four epistles. That is because some people have misunderstood the emphasis we put upon those epistles as being the God's revelation to fill this present interval. If you're frightened about that, well, you better go back to Pentecost or to the Sermon on the Mount. We won't be able to do much about it. But if you recognize that you are living in a parenthesis, you're living in a period when God's ancient people are suspended you may have enough logic in your makeup to say, well, where do I come in? And if you ask that question, you get it answered in this set of epistles. Now, I've said, prison epistles. Perhaps I'd better go one further and tell you which epistles are marked with the word prison. I won't give you chapter and verse. I'll leave you just a little bit to do for yourselves. The epistle to the Ephesians contains the word prisoner. So does the word so does Philippians, Colossians, Second Timothy, 
and Philemon. Now, as Philemon is a personal epistle and a very precious one, but doesn't contribute any positive teaching to this high calling, we usually say the four prison epistles. Ephesians and Colossians giving us the basic truth of the mystery, and Philippians and Second Timothy giving us the exhortation to run with patience the race set before us for the prize of the high calling and warning us that no man is crowned except he strive lawfully. Well now, I don't think we can do much more. Our time is running out. I hope that if you've endured so far this little attempt, first of all to assure you we want to help you, secondly to assure you of the doctrinal basis upon which our teaching rests, and if in any measure that commends itself to you, to assure you that our delight and joy will be to start, if you will, with some of the recordings with Genesis and walk with us through the book to the book of the Revelation as we've done, that will be sufficient witness that we do not set aside any part of the word of God. But all the time there will be the thought in our minds, all that we should have the joy of leading another one to see this high calling of God in Christ Jesus which doesn't merely tell you one day you'll walk in the paradise of God on earth or walk the golden streets of the new Jerusalem, but you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So I'm finishing this recording with a few verses from Colossians chapter 3. I would like to lead, leave you with this position where Christ sits. Colossians chapter 3 If ye then be risen with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth for ye are dead better still for ye died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. If that's not a blessed hope, what is? So we ask you that you will counter any move that may be made against you, warning you that we shall be robbing you. Robbing you. I wish some people had robbed me in the same way that I'm supposed to be robbing other people, exchanging earthly blessings for blessings beyond dreams. And that's what it amounts to. So may we just commend this witness to you and stretch out the hand of fellowship to you. May we in spirit feel the grip of your hand across the many miles that divide us and look forward one day not to be divided again about to be members of the body of Christ, when that day of glory dawns, be reckoned a number of those who constitute the very fullness of him that filleth all in all.